you have your Bible this morning, uh, you can take it out and open it to James uh, chapter 5. There you go, a little rim shot. <laughs> James chapter 5, we're continuing our series, we're closing in on the uh, end of our series, uh, the genuine article in the book of James, and uh, we'll do that over the next two weeks, and then we'll shift our focus abruptly to Christmas, so it might seem as though uh, this... Uh, the book of James doesn't have a tight correlation to uh, the story of Christmas or to Christmas itself, uh, but I think this morning's subject uh, in particular is a good one in a culture where we spend so much money uh, in the celebration of Christmas. So as we continue our series, uh, we're reminded that in the last half of, of James' letter, he has been focusing on this idea that uh, real faith produces genuine humility. Real faith produces genuine humility, and then uh, we've kind of watched him use uh, different aspects or different applications of that idea. This morning, uh, he's going to uh, speak to us about money. Real humility, or real faith rather, produces genuine humility, and he's going to flesh that out on the subject of money. This is our first Sunday of the month, which we call an all-in Sunday, which means that uh, children's ministry and student ministry set in. Uh, Val and I kind of conspired some time ago to start giving uh, the students something to kind of work with during the message. And because I've said money, you may think this doesn't apply to you. But I want you to know now, which I'm guessing you're already hip to, that money is going to be a big part of life. And the sooner you can learn uh, lessons about what God says about money, the better off you will be. And then moms and dads, particularly moms and dads who have uh, children and children's ministry. I recognize, uh, so does Julie, uh, the challenge sometimes of having children in a service. But we do an all-in Sunday for a couple of reasons. One, because we want to be teaching children as they grow up what it looks like to be in worship, uh, to hear the preaching of God's Word. And so it may be a challenge to some of the younger ones here, but it's worth fighting for and fighting through. And then most importantly, uh, this is the Sunday that we celebrate communion together. So I just want to encourage moms and dads, whether you're here or listening by radio, uh, to make it a priority to be with us on a first Sunday. It's worth uh, the challenge of being here so that we can model for our kids uh, one of the most beautiful pictures of what it means to have a relationship with Christ in the taking and celebration of communion. So in preparation for this message, uh, I did a little research on, the, on average Americans and their money, and I came across... Uh, interesting stats, some of which uh, many of us may identify with. Uh, stats show that 51% of Americans say they are financially secure. Uh, a little more than half of Americans say they're financially secure. What's interesting, though, is when you get behind the reason why people feel secure, they tend to attach it to things like uh, to postgraduate degrees or uh, incomes above $100,000. And so the, the idea built into the stat is just, if, if we had just had more money, then I would feel secure. And those who have handled lots of wealth will tell you that the problems just get bigger the more money you have. Uh, there's something uh, there about insecurity and about confidence that I think uh, the Christian faith and scriptures in particular offer us. Another stat said one in three Americans report having no savings. More than half, that is 55% of Americans, uh, report just breaking even or spending more on an annual basis than they actually make. And so that leads to uh, the third stat, which is that 8 in 10 Americans uh, are, uh, have some sort of debt. And if you're spending more than you're making, I'm no uh, 
math guy, but if you're spending more than you're making, that's a hole you're digging for yourself year after year. 55% of Americans say they have less than a month's income save for emergencies. 60% of American households said that they had a financial shock in the previous year, that is a major car repair or some kind of household repair, an illness or injury, a loss of income due to unemployment, a pay cut, or reduced hours. And then a final stat, nearly one in five worry they can't pay for everyday expenses. This is kind of the average American in our society. Some of us fit in this room into that category. We identify with some of those struggles and some of us don't. But when you stack stats like these up against the small percentage of people like professional athletes or um, uh, entertainers or CEO types who have often earned incredible amounts and often give incredible amounts away, the average person in America has a tendency to feel as though they're closer to poverty than they are to wealth. And that's because in our culture, we're driven by a standard of comparison. One of the worst mistakes that we make is by looking not to God, who is the giver of good things, but to other people around us, to our peers. And we evaluate what we have based upon comparison instead of uh, living our lives around the discipline of contentment. Last week, we talked about how God is a good God, that he gives good. And every one of us in this room can testify in some way, though we all come from different levels of living, to the goodness of God in us, toward us. And yet, unless we are focused on God as the sovereign over my life, then we will not grow contentment. We will grow discontentment based upon comparison. Now, you may feel this morning that you fit, because you're an average American, you fit into the, the crowd uh, that's closer to poverty. But the average American who holds a bachelor degree in our culture will earn and handle $1.8 million over the course of their lifetime. Young people, money does not buy happiness. Money can take care of a lot of things. And you need to know, long before you enter the workplace, that when your life is said and done, you will on average have handled $1.8 million. What you do with that, how you handle that, uh, is going to be looked at by the God who loves you and who's giving you good things. $1.8 million. And when you consider that, that the average person in our day with an education handle that kind of money, it, it tends to help us realize that we're not in the impoverished category. In fact, uh, nearly half of the world's population exists on less than $5.50 a day. How much does a latte cost you at Starbucks? Huh? Pretty close to that, isn't it? So half of the world's population exists on the latte that you think nothing of buying, that I think nothing of buying. You see, when we look to what Scripture says, and particularly what James is going to say, uh, rather than factoring ourselves out of view uh, for what he is aiming at, we probably in our day ought to recognize that he's speaking to us, that we are greatly blessed, and that that blessing is a stewardship meant to be managed. And if we are going to manage it, then we must learn the discipline of contentment and not comparison. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about money. And let me just say up front, uh, people are funny about money. And Christians are the worst 
we're very odd about money. We like it, but we also want to model virtue of virtues like contentment, and we're not trying to keep up with the Joneses, but we still want all the nice things. We're funny about money. And uh, it's important for us to go back to last week and to recognize that, that the reason why the Bible talks a lot about money is not because God wants in your wallet. Now, there are some pragmatic realities to being a part of the household of God. It takes money to keep the power turned on. It takes money to run our programs and to do the things that we do. And, and God has given us a responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to steward our resources in such a way that we can give generously to God's work in the world. This not only helps us do what we're called to do by ministering to the household of faith, but it enables us to take the gospel outside the walls of our church and around the world. There are just some pragmatic realities to the fact that it costs to run ministry. But God doesn't need our money. When you slip your offering into the plate, God isn't like wiping his forehead and saying, thank God we can keep the power on. He's not worried about that. The reason why the Bible talks a lot about money is because money has a way of becoming God to us. Our culture is driven by it. So as we consider what the scriptures have to say, we have to just kind of get the elephant, uh, acknowledge the elephant in the room, and that is that, that none of us probably want to lay open our checkbook, although if we did, it would say something our priorities. It would say something about who has the throne of our hearts, God or money or worse, our desire and attempt to be God to ourselves. <clears throat> everything that God says, everything that God's word says about money is intended for our good. It's attempting to set us free from something that can, we can become enslaved to. And rather than being master over our money, we can become, as we often are in our culture, mastered by it and we're all subject to this temptation I have a big TV I don't know what it is to be honest with you I just know it's not big enough my flesh sees that they make an 82 inch television I mean things are so ridiculously large that you can actually have a whole wall in your living room this large and I just have to tell myself every time I'm tempted to think about having something I don't possess God's been good to me what I have is good enough. I can see it from like eight feet away on the couch. Almost life-size figures. I don't know what it is. It's not 82 inches. But our culture, Madison Avenue, exists to, to lure us toward having more and to be discontented about what we have. And what gets lost in the fray of all of that is we fail to be thankful for what God has been good to us over. And it's not even the possessions. What matters most are the people. And James is going to talk about how we run the risk of overlooking people. Now, I want to give a quick caveat when I say that Christians, uh, among all people, are funny about money. I also want to throw out a caveat. My job as a pastor, and along with our staff, is to manage our budgets well. We set goals on ministry, and we're supposed to manage the investment that the executive committee has helped us plan out and the congregation has affirmed. And so it's my job to scrutinize how we're spending those dollars. But you need to know this morning that I don't know what you give. Now, I don't know, not because I don't trust myself. I recognize that everyone here this morning is a sinner saved by grace. You got a rap sheet. I may not know what it is. I often learn, but I don't judge people based on their struggles. My job is to be a messenger of God's grace and love and forgiveness. I want to encourage you to overcome whatever it is that's besetting you. So it's not that I don't trust myself with the information. 
I'm not, as James has cautioned us, I'm not subject to playing favorites simply because I know you give a lot. I choose not to know what people give so that when it comes to teaching what the scriptures have to say about money, I can do so unashamedly. I can do so confidently, and I can do it without worrying that you think I know something about you I don't know. So as I talk about money this morning and every other time it comes up, you need to know if you feel convicted, that's the Holy Spirit. I'm not gunning for you. I'm just trying to faithfully teach what the Bible has to say. So James helps us return to a recurring theme. In fact, it shouldn't surprise us to know that James is going to talk about money because he's kind of tipped his hand to the reality that this is coming. In James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he talks about having a good perspective. He reminds us that the, the lowly brother ought to boast in his exaltation, the one who doesn't have a great deal, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Verse 11, at the end of that verse, he refers to how a flower falls and beauty perishes. And then he says, so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The reason why we should learn contentment in the small things is because the more that we get, the more we deceive ourselves into thinking we can stave off our imminent demise. We can push God off. And yet the scripture says, as you sit here this morning, God knows the days he has given to you. He knows when it's coming, you don't. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that if we just had more, we could pay for things to go away. The reality is, is that death is coming for every one of us. Whether it happens when we're young or whether we're blessed to see long days. Second, he tells us uh, that there's no, there should be no room for partiality. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, uh, he's rebuking uh, those who would play favorites among brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But, have dishonored the poor, we have, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And then James warns us against worldliness in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, where he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I've told you several times in this series that James is the brother of Jesus and that much of what he says is an echo of what he heard Jesus both say and do. In that regard, he uh, speaks in parables. He's very Old Testament-like. But he's just echoing things that Jesus has said. And of all the writers in Scripture, of all those whose voices echoed in Scripture, Jesus said more about money than anyone else did. Just a short survey of the Gospels, you'll find three parables and a, a personal encounter where Jesus is dealing with the subject of money and how it influences us. In Luke chapter 16, he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the issue in the parable is not that the, wealth, the man had wealth, it's the way he spends his wealth. It's his lifestyle. His lifestyle is, is such a commitment to self, to self-serving, that he neglects other people who are apparently his responsibility like Lazarus. And Scripture is clear. Judgment is clear when we do that. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. 
I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then those, they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or naked or thirsty or in prison or sick? And Jesus is going to say words that are familiar to us. Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. You see, as we sit here this morning, the sobering reality about how God sees us is that the reason why he blesses us with things is for the good of other people. It's for the ministry that we can do to those sitting around us. Luke chapter 12, he tells the parable of the rich man building barns of excess. He's condemned not for being rich, but for hoarding. He worships his wealth, believing that it secures his future. And in verse 21 of chapter 12, it says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now it is wise to save. I'm going to end the message with some pointers on how to be a good steward. It's wise to save. But part of our saving should be a desire to create enough margin in our lives where we can yield to the Holy Spirit when he tells us to do something. And inasmuch as we do it, to the least of these... We're doing it unto Jesus. Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, Jesus tells the parable of the unjust steward. And he rebukes the man who was a poor manager of the master's resources. The reason why he's a poor manager is because he has a divided loyalty. There's a duplicity inside of him. And I think this is a very real struggle for us. On the one hand, we want to honor God and we want to to do for God. But oftentimes, unless we're wrestling against our temptation and our flesh, then much of what we do for God is just paying Him off while we continue to run our own plan for our life. Having whatever it is that we want. Getting the next thing. Acquiring. The just steward is the one who recognizes that God is scrutinizing everything. That which we give to Him, that which we do to honor or serve other people, as well as that which we live on. Verse 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one uh, and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is why it's an important subject. Because apart from a relationship with God where your understanding of His sovereignty over your life and the, pla- the fact that He has a plan for you and a purpose for you, apart from that, then you will live to self. And the God you will serve will be money. God very much wants to set us free from that. He doesn't want us to divest ourselves of everything we have. He wants you to work hard for your paycheck. He wants you to take care of your family. He wants you to be involved in ministry to other people. He's not looking to take things away from us. He simply wants us to recognize that apart from him, we are apt to make a God out of something that is godless. Luke 18, finally, a personal encounter Jesus has with a rich young ruler who is self-righteous in his outward actions. He does all the right things. He's philanthropic. He gives. He would have a, a list of things he's donated to. And yet when it comes to giving God the one thing that he wants the most, which is his heart, he turns away. So uh, though he is outwardly self-righteous, inwardly his heart belongs to his wealth. And he can't give it up. Verse 24 Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. James is writing 
to the rich. Most of the Christians, 90% of the world in which James is living, are impoverished. They are trapped. Uh, you are not trapped, as you sit here. The world, as they say, is your oyster if you're born in the West, especially if you're an American. We are the objects of what James has, James has to say as we look to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are eat, moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who, mow, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now in the continuing uh, series of lessons about how real faith produces genuine humility, James is going to talk now about money. And it's just a, a reminder, uh, we, we refer back to an understanding of humility as submission to God. Submission to God means that we never verbally abuse other people, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. It means that we make plans with humility, recognizing that God is the sovereign over us, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. We do what God wants us to do. We seek His will, chapter 4, verse 17. And then today, another lesson regarding humility when it comes to money. I would give one overarching premise, and it would be this, that great intelligence and hard work can make a person wealthy, but it takes God-given wisdom and supernatural humility to be able to manage wealth and influence in such a way that it honors God, that it doesn't control us, and that it seeks the good of other people. So who is James speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the unbelieving rich. That's the one caveat I would make. In James' context, he's speaking to wealthy people who are, by and large, unbelievers. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, he references them when he says, the rich ones are the ones who oppress you, are the ones who drag you into court. They're the ones who uh, dishonor, the blaspheme, the honorable name by which you are called. And what's important as we consider these five verses this morning is to recognize uh, that, uh, that James is not offering an immediate path to repentance. He doesn't say anything about how to undo the problem. He's just stating what the problem is. So I want to break the message down into two quick points. Number one, worldly wealth makes a miserable master. It will make you, it will take from others too, but in the end, ultimately, it will break you. If you live as though money is your God, if you live as though that is what makes the world go round for you, in the end, it will fail you. He announces judgment in verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is counterintuitive to our culture, isn't it? As we sit here this morning, most of us, if we were completely honest, would say, if I just had a little more money. If I just had, and it's not even necessarily for self-serving means. Some of us say, if I just had a little more money, I would do more good with it. I have, can't tell you how many times over 28 years of ministry I've had people say, Pastor, I'm going to win the lottery. It's going to make a big change in this church. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm no prophet, but you're probably not going to, you know, that's not how God's funding his work. 
we often think that if we just had a little bit more, we could do a little more good with it. It's counterintuitive to understand that, that God doesn't view the world that way. God views the person who has little, but knows how to surrender it to him, and through that little, he does much. I give you the little boy who had fishes and loaves that ended up multiplying and feeding 5,000. The way the kingdom works is that we get focused on that God is the giver of all good things and that we can take the little that he has provided us and with a heart of contentment we can watch him do great things with it. Not the way the world is. The world says if I could just have more. And in so doing, money becomes a powerful God. And for that reason, it is a perilous matter, something that we need to take serious. There is a decaying delusion, James says, that leads to self-destruction. Instead of being happy about being rich, he says what you ought to be is you ought to be weeping and mourning. Because in having great wealth, we tend to squeeze God out. That's the definition, Ken Blanchard says, of ego. Ego, when we live for it, is edging God out. The person who says, my God is my money because money makes me God. But Jesus says in Luke 6.24, Woe to those who are rich. You have received your consolation. Friends, regardless of the station God has given you, regardless of the amount of money that flows through your hands, it would be far better for you to be rich toward God, humbling yourself, contented in what He is giving, and seeking to do good all around you. That way, your consolation is coming when you stand before Him. He describes the judgment in verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You see, there's a difference between being wise and being worldly. There's a difference between being shrewd and then learning how to be a good steward versus being self-centered and serving yourself, yourself only. The charges that James makes are that, number one, wealth has a negative effect on the individual. It tends toward hoarding. Have you ever noticed it in you that whatever good thing you have is not good enough, that I need the next good thing? Isn't that as apparent what we watch happen every Christmas? Man, you work hard, you save up, you buy those gifts that your kids wrote letters to, you know, the, the things that they were hoping for, and you purchase gifts for them, and they play with them for five minutes, especially with it when they're young. Play with them for five minutes, and then what do they do? They need the next thing. They want something more. It's just human nature. And James says this amounts to hoarding, and it results in miserable dividends. If you're just hoarding and accumulating for yourself, it has a way of coming back on you. He also faults the rich for cheating. You get ahead by being a miser. Jerry Jones, owner of the Cowboys, will talk about how it's important to count paper clips. Why? Because he can't afford them? No. Because the way you get a lot of paper clips is you count the ones you have. And then eventually that turns into dollars. And next thing you know, you own the world's most profitable franchise. I'm sorry, it's just true. Go Denver. And this has an adverse effect on our eternity. James says there's no relief coming if this is the way we live. But maybe more detrimental is the recognition that wealth has an adverse effect often on others. Verses 4 through 6, he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept 
you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wealth often pushes us toward a selfish lifestyle. And the results tend to be unjust acts toward other people who we easily forget, the marginalized. This is why I implore you, when you go to lunch in a restaurant after church, tip well. If you're not going to tip well, don't tell them you come to community church. Don't tell them you know Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity for us to serve people who are actually serving us and to be generous in doing so. God looks favorably upon that kind of outlook. It also leads to taking unfair advantage of the righteous, and this results in pending judgment. Now, the pointed problem that James deals with in chapter, one, verse, uh, chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 6, uh, is that it is, it is significant both that this is not a call to repentance. It's just pointing out the problem, uh, but it's, it's, it's more of a reaction to the calamity that's coming. And so you and I need to see what Scripture says, what James is saying to the rich in his day, and rather than skirting around it because we're not rich by comparison of Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, we should squarely look at it and recognize that it doesn't matter what we've been given in comparison to other people. God has given us much, and we must be good stewards. So when it comes to wealth and money, we, we need to recognize that it's a danger, a very real danger to us for two reasons. Number one... It tempts us to ignore God. Money entices us to a powerful lust. And oftentimes, our faith extends just about as far as our bank account does. In fact, when we uh, recognize our bank account is getting low, then faith kicks in. Instead of living with the reality that I have nothing, that, that it can be here today and gone tomorrow, that, that all I have is, is everything, I have God and His promise to care for me and to meet my needs, and a track record of faithfulness over 52 years that he always comes through. Did we always have everything our peers had? No. But we, we had enough to be grateful for. We had enough to do what he was calling us to do. But when we buy into the lure that money entices us toward, we have a way of forgetting God. And then we start thinking about how long we can go without really needing to rely on him. Faith, uh, friends, faith is developed at the place of our great need. And when we have an attitude toward money that says, you know what, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. Some have a lot, some have a little. I pity people who don't have God because I have God today. And no matter what comes my way, he's enough. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Second, it tempts us to ignore others. Money blinds us from seeing other people. When we're so fixated on how to serve ourselves and our dreams and our aspirations, then we have a tendency to overlook other people around us. And this is just how money tends to play out in our world. Avarice, greed, uh, excess, they tend to be the undoing of human society. I reference history. 70 AD, Jerusalem is living high on the hog. They think they're really doing well, and yet they don't recognize that God has turned his favor and they're fixing to lose their country. Jerusalem's fixing to be sacked and the walls are going to be burned down. Rome, at the height of the Roman Empire, they had everything. And it was their own avarice that was their undoing. In much of the West, in Europe, this is the same story. And the story is playing out even as we speak in America. We become so intoxicated 
with avarice and wealth and having more that we don't even see destruction coming. So James points to the problem and then we're left to discover that there is an inherent solution. True wealth comes from God alone. He is the master over me and I am merely a manager over the good he intends. Without comparison, each one of us should seek to live our lives heeding two principles. Number one, God owns everything. I am just a steward of his stuff. The clothes you have on, the car you drive, the house you live in, everything you have, everything you are, God owns it. And life gets really exciting when you finally sign over the deed to all of that to its rightful belong, to its rightful owner. And then I discover he doesn't want to take good things from me. He gives good things so that I might become his steward. Psalm 50 verses 9 through 12 says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. God's saying, I don't need you to pull cash out of your wallet. That's not what I'm looking for. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Friends, we should not shrink away from what God has to say about money. Because all he seeks to do is liberate us from something that will control us. He's not after your money. He's not after the things that you possess. He simply wants to help you learn how to manage it and manage it well. And that is for the good of your own soul as well as for the good of others around you. God owns everything and I am just his steward. God doesn't give entitlements. We stand, we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. We stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Your sin is not any worse than mine, and my sin is any worse than yours. We stand on level ground. God isn't given entitlements. He doesn't play favorites. He gives good things to his children, and what he wants to do is to help us grow in contentment, to praise him for the good that we have, and then to learn how to be a steward that does good in the lives of other people. God gives gifts of grace that are entrusted for us to manage. And that leads to the second. The second principle is that God will judge and reward us in our eternal life based upon how we use our time, talent, and treasures in this life. There's not enough money in the world to stave off that moment in time when the father looks to his right and says to his son, go get my children. Friends, it doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank at, the, at that time. It doesn't matter what your 401k looks like, what your plans for the future are. When God the Father looks to his son and says, we're done, go get my children. Game over. He's coming. Second advent. And when that happens, every man, woman, child who has ever breathed the breath of life that's come to us from a gracious God will stand before him and we will give an account for everything, every good and perfect gift that came our way. Peter writes in 2 Peter, but when the day of judgment, God's judgment does come, it will be unannounced like a thief. The sky will collapse with a thunderous bang, every disintegrating, everything disintegrating into a huge conflagration or fire. Earth and all of its works exposed to the scrutiny of judgment. Since everything here today might well be gone tomorrow, do you see how essential it is to live a holy life. 
to serve a true and living God and not the almighty dollar. Matthew, Jesus says, Then do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God does not rebuke the rich for having wealth. In fact, that wealth came from God, just the same as the little that you may have came from Him as well. What He desires is that we would find our station, our purpose in life, and that it would look like surrendering with humility everything we have to Him and then learning how to do good to others around us. This is what it means to grow. This is why we do things like Operation Christmas Child and uh, and we support disaster relief when a hurricane hits, or we give to mission. Why? Well, because part, part of it is we're called to take the gospel to other places, so we do it out of obligation to him. But a second reason as a pastor why we do it is because it's an opportunity for spiritual growth in your life. We're investing to make good on the faithful men and women who've gone before us to provide us with the house of worship that we sit in this morning. We want to take care of it. Why? Because there's a generation coming. And we want them to know God was faithful and his people were faithful. And so we make it, we're making an investment in our facility, not because we're squandering dollars, but because we have a responsibility to continue to advance the gospel. And part of that means making sure everybody can hear it. People get funny about money. There are questions which we'll answer next weekend at, the, at our business meeting about money. But the reasons why we do what we do are, number one, because we know that we're serving a God who is faithful of the investments that we make in this life to advance the gospel and to do good. And second, because God is not our money. We've been made stewards of it. And the worst thing our executive committee could do was continue to build up an account which has lots of money and it can stave off disaster when the moment strikes. The problem is we're not walking by faith, trusting God to provide for us. So it's kind of a both and. We want to be good stewards, but we also want to make strategic investments in the kingdom. And in doing so, we want to manage well all that God has given to us. Luke chapter 9, verse 25, Jesus says, What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world? Young people, what would it profit you if you could have everything the world has to offer, yet in the end you lose your own soul? I'm telling you, it's a mistake to think the world entices you to think. Be rich in your heart toward God. Recognize that He loves you more uh, as you are. You don't have to do anything to please Him. He has a purpose and a plan for your life, and He's going to, uh, to unload on you great good during the course of it. But what He asks of you, what He asks of me, is that we be good stewards of what He entrusts to us. That when we stand before Him, is He bothered by the fact that you had a latte? I don't think so as long as it's not lattes all the time, 24-7. There might be a better investment of your money. But when we stand before Him, if what speaks of the character of our life is that we were rich toward God and we were investing His work in the world and we were striving to do good to other people, this is what God is looking for. And that change happens when He sets us free from being God of our own lives or from serving something lesser than God like money. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you've never taken the step of establishing a relationship with God and seeking forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ, can I just implore you to recognize the folly of serving yourself or serving the dollar 
in the end, it will betray your soul. You can live high on the hog all the days of your life and you don't know when it's going to end, but if that's the strategy you take, you will be sorely disappointed for all of eternity. God would set you free. He would set you free to a life that looks much saner than that. For the believer, be rich toward God, rich toward others. Pursue the disciplines of becoming a good steward. What does that mean? Recognize that, that every one of us faces the challenge of, of, of having a, a reasonable standard of living. Don't let the world dictate to you what your standard of living ought to be. Set a reasonable standard of living. You know, a good plan is a 10-10-80. Honor God with 10%, pay yourself for the future with 10%, and then carve out a living where you pay the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker on 80%. And if you have to make eight, a tough decisions about what you're not going to have in order to live within the 80%, then that's what you do. That's good stewardship. Be rich toward God. Be wise. Invest in things that are eternal. Master your money. Don't be mastered by it. In so doing, not only will we liberate our own hearts, but we will be available to God to do a world of good to other people around us. Father, thank you for the great good that has come our way. You have done so much for us. God, would you set us free as a people in our culture from uh, walking down the path of comparison where, ne where what we have is never good enough where we evaluate your goodness toward us based on what you've done for somebody else, would you rather instead set us free to be people uh, who live the discipline of contentment? And God, as we come to the table of communion this morning, may we be humbled to recognize that heaven spent its richest treasure on us. You are not a God who holds back. You gave the very best. It's the reason why we shouldn't be seeking something new from you because your greatest revelation to us is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And by it, you would set us free from lesser things. That we would not worship ourselves as God or seek to, to worship money. But that we would soundly reject that in order that we might worship the true and living God. And as we honor you this morning by remembering the broken body and the shed blood. Our desire is to be available to you as good stewards, ready to do your work, ready to do your bidding, that the lives of men and women who do not yet know you would come to know you. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. I didn't ask in advance, but if I could have uh, members of the executive committee come and help, uh, perhaps staff will pass out communion and we'll finish